LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Ben Dyson of Positive Money, a not-for-profit research and campaign group who work to raise awareness of the connections between our current monetary and banking system and some of the biggest social, economic and environmental challenges that we face today. In particular, Positive Money focuses on the role of banks in creating the nation's money supply through the accounting process that they use when they make loans an aspect of banking which is poorly understood. Positive Money believes these fundamental flaws are at the root of, or a major contributor to, the problems of poverty, excessive debt, growing inequality and environmental degradation. Hello and welcome Ben Dyson and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you. Now, Ben, we're going to talk today about the work that you guys are doing over at Positive Money. Now, your website's PositiveMoney.org, we should say straight away. Perhaps to get us going, you could tell us something about how the organization came to be and uh, what your aims are. Definitely. Well, um, back in about 2006, I was uh, studying uh, for development economics at a university in London and uh, looking through the library one day for a a textbook and just stumbled across this book called The Grip of Death, which was uh, by Michael Robotham. And that book was actually about the, uh, the monetary system and how money was created and how the system currently works and what it explained to me was was something that was not explained in any of the economics courses which is how money is actually created by the banking system and by by the process of bank lending and it made complete sense of what was happening at the time with you know house prices going up as highly as quickly as they were and I kind of read through it and thought well if, if this is the way the system's structured then pretty soon you can expect it to fall apart so that was in 2006 2007 was the start with uh, with Northern Rock, and then 2008, the whole you know, crisis really played out. So for about two years, I was watching the crisis playing out, thinking, well, now it's so obvious that there's a problem with the monetary system that journalists and politicians are going to start talking about this. And after about two years, uh, I'd still seen almost nothing in the press about this uh, process of money creation by the banks. Uh, you know, people were talking about why there's too much debt and why there's too much you know, too much lending, too much risky lending in the system. But they didn't talk about the fact that all of this lending is actually creating new money. And that's where the, the debt has come from. So after about two years of that, going up to about 2009, I started to get really frustrated with this and just started blogging on my own website. And then um, gradually got a few more people following them. And then realized after about a year of doing that, you know, there's only so much you can do through a blog. So I, I said, well, now we need to get uh, an organization and we need to get some people together and some funding and actually you know, do this properly. So we were lucky enough to find a couple of people who provided a bit of money for me to um, start working on this full time and just concentrate on it for the first six months. Um, and we founded Positive Money then. 
Yeah, and it's just kind of grown from then. So we've um, we've got about pushing t- eleven thousand people around the country who are following what we're doing. Um, supporters as activist groups all around the country who are you know working to get people to understand the monetary system and how we can can change it. Okay, excellent. Well, we'll get move on to uh, a little later uh, where we're going with all this, but perhaps we just look at where we are. People listening to this will be from various, uh, will find themselves at various stages of familiarity with the monetary system. But uh, if you were talking to someone fresh, maybe for the first time, who is, you know, thus far only had really the mainstream view of things, what's sort of the key aspect or aspect of the monetary system that you think people should be aware of? I mean, is it money actually being created as debt uh, when it's loaned into the system, or is it the fact that? We have a fractional reserve system, which essentially means that all the money that's in the bank isn't there. Or to put it another way, bank you, you deposit £10, the bank can lend 100 You know, What are the, the cornerstones of this that you think people should be aware of? Well, I think, I think most people have this idea that there's a, a fixed amount of money in the economy and that only the government is allowed to create it. And if you create it yourself, then you'll get the police coming through the door. Um, what most people and most politicians actually don't realize is that money is created by the banking system and it's created every time that somebody takes that loan. So um, to give you the figures, uh, the most recent figures, in the entire UK economy, there is about 60 billion pounds in cash. So, you know, the paper, banknotes and coins. Um, There's about 2,050 billion pounds. So that's over 2 trillion pounds of money that is created by the banking system. And uh, what the banks do is they create money when they make loans through the, the accounting process that they use. Um, so the vast majority of all the money in the economy is created by the banks. Um, every time somebody goes into debt, new money is created. And when they pay off debt, then that money kind of disappears from the system. Um, so actually, we have what is essentially a you know a privatized monetary system where it's the, um, the same banks that cause the crisis also have the, the responsibility for creating the money. Okay. So, yeah, you were referring earlier to the education system and the fact that you were studying when the, the real nature of uh, the monetary system uh, began to uh, become obvious to you. And we do have a major problem there because, in general, economics isn't taught in schools at all. Uh, we talk about kids, teenagers. They learn very little about money, just really taught by society to, to want it. But the nature of it is never really discussed. And when you do get into rudimentary economics, uh, you know, that may come up in, in some other subject area, um, it's very much not not encouraged to look into. It's seen as a uh, you know an expert discipline, some, something a bit like law or medicine that would take many years of study, and basically it's beyond the the wit of most people. And uh, that's really where the problem starts, isn't it? When we what we grew up thinking about money. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely. I mean, it's um, it annoys me that they teach things like trigonometry, and um, rather obscure authors and works of fiction in schools, but they don't actually teach you how to use a credit card. And things as simple as that, you know, things you actually need to know to be able to um, to live in this economy and not end up massively in debt. But one of the things they never teach really is, is where money actually comes from. And that really affects the entire economy and it affects the, the world that we're living in. Um, so even when they do, if, if you do a degree in economics, they might teach you, some courses will teach you that uh, banks create money, um, but they'll give you a, a brief explanation of how this works, and then the analysis just stops. So they don't go into all the consequences, the fact that um, at the same time as creating money, they're creating debt, 
or the fact that this uh, distorts the economy, it pushes up house prices, uh, it leads to instability in the economy. So none of this is really discussed. It's just, oh, by the way, the banking system creates money uh, through this process, and then that's considered to be, um, you know, all that all that is needed to be said about the uh, the issue. Well, because I think because people think of money, I mean, people do increasingly understand these days that a lot of what we call money doesn't physically exist. It's figures on a screen and stuff. You know, when you make a bank transfer, nothing really happens in the physical world. But when we think of currency, coins and notes and whatever country you're in, you know, the nature of these varies. But we think of the the euro, uh, the US dollar, sterling here in the UK. There's something about that that's of the government. Now, of course, the government does produce the hard currency that's in circulation. But I certainly, if you'd asked me when I was a child in the 70s or 80s, where did the money come from? And I'd have said, oh, well, the government makes it. You know, they, they're, they have a special license to do this. And that's what all this spiel and gobbledygook on the paper money is all about, telling us what comes from the government. And, of course, a fundamental question for someone confronting this for the first time is, OK, well, why doesn't the government make all the money? You know, why does a private institution, private business is what, you know, the vast majority of the banks are. Why is it down to them? Something so, you know, sacrosanct. Why does it fall to them? How did this arise? Has it always been like this? There's some of the questions you'd imagine would come up. Well, it's a it's a system that's evolved over uh, a long period of time. I mean, I'll give you an example. Basically, in the um, in the 1800s, people would put their coins into the bank for safekeeping. And the bank would give you a piece of paper that would say how much you've put into the bank. Um, so you got this piece of paper that said, you know, five pounds on it. And then instead of people using the pieces of paper to get the money, the coins out of the bank and then spending the coins, they actually started to pass these pieces of paper around, you know, in the in the local shops and in the village. Um, and people started to use the paper money, the, the paper notes from the banks as though they were real money. Now, over time that paper money became more popular than the metal money because it was more convenient and it was easier to carry around. And uh, what that meant was that essentially banks had acquired the power to literally print money. If they printed more of these paper notes with uh, with certain amounts written on them, they could lend them out to people in the, the, in the village, people with businesses. Um, and that would mean that the more they printed, the more they could lend and the more they lent, the more profit and interest they would receive. So in the 1840s, the government of the day, uh, it was a conservative government, Robert Peel was the prime minister. Um, they passed a law to prevent banks from being able to create their own paper money. And that's why now if you, you know, if you print money at home, you'll get the police coming through the door. But the law that they passed in 1844 never applied to electronic money. And that's, you know, it's fairly obvious why, because they didn't even really have electricity in those days. So um, since then, the development of these electronic means of payment have meant that we can now use the numbers that banks create in their uh, accounting systems in place of the paper and the metal money. And we're basically where we were again in 1844, except now the problem is not the paper money, it's the, uh, the creation of electronic money. So we've reached the point where... Um, in 1970, there were 30 billion pounds of money in the entire economy. By uh, 2000 and well, by uh, by the end of last year, there were over 2,000 billion pounds of money in the economy, and this this vast majority of money was created electronically by the banking system. 
So why don't we all feel wealthier as a result of this extra money sloshing around? Is it just simple devaluation or is it, um, you know, price inflation? Or? Well, that's the point. This this money doesn't really make anybody wealthier. What it does is um, it causes inflation. Uh, but the point is that it causes inflation in the places where that money goes first. So, um, I mean, the the Bank of England and the government will tell you that inflation has been quite low for the last 10 years. But that's because they use a measure of inflation that only includes things in supermarkets and in shops. Uh, but if you were to include the cost of housing and inflation, then you see that inflation has been huge. You know, the reason for that is because the vast majority of the money that banks are creating through loans is going straight into the property market. So in the 10 years running up to the start of the financial crisis, 40% of all the money that they created went into property. 40% went into the financial markets and just 10% uh, went into consumer spending, into things like uh, personal loans and overdrafts. And um, another 13% went to businesses. So when the majority of the money that, they, that the banks create goes into property and uh, financial markets, that's where the prices go up. And that's why, you know, over the last 10 years, house prices have tripled. Um, whereas the prices of things in shops haven't actually gone up that quickly. Yeah, and with regard to the sort of brains behind this, um, we referred to the education system and you were talking about what happens if you take a mainline degree in economics. But of course, a lot of the uh, so-called experts are wheeled out in the media now to explain or uh, apologise for uh, what's going on at the minute. These same so-called experts have come through this education system and of course, they may or may not be aware of the wider reality beyond this and different ways of doing things. But certainly a lot that I listen to in the mainstream media appear not to be aware of this. And even if they are, I guess they're dependent on this, on maintaining the status quo and, and whatever happens, you know, because it, it pays them as well. You'd be surprised at how many people don't really understand money creation. For example, uh, I went to an event where there were eight hedge fund managers talking about uh, the economy and what they thought would happen. And every one of them was uh, up in arms about the fact that the government was creating money through quantitative easing. And they thought that this would lead to Zimbab you know, some sort of Zimbabwe-style hyperinflation. I don't think a single one of them actually understood that banks create money all the time as a, as a matter of course. Um, and it's the same with most politicians as well. They don't really understand that the majority of money is created by the banks. So I, I gave a talk at the, um, the Welsh Assembly um, in November uh, to a number of the Assembly members there, uh, just explaining that the... Um, so, for example, the Welsh Assembly government has been given about $4 billion over 15 years to rebuild the schools in Wales. Um, $4 billion was the amount of money that the banks created in one single week in 2007 to put into property. And yet... Um, because of this this lack of education, this lack of understanding, most of the policymakers and most of the people who are trying to solve the current crisis uh, believe that the only way to get money is to get it from taxpayers, and that you know there simply isn't enough money to do these things that we need to do uh, for the long term and for you know things like building schools and that. And yet, actually, the banks have this power to create money for whatever they decide is is worth creating for. You know, whether it's financial speculation, whether it's pushing up house prices. Um, or whether it's, you know, in, in the rare case that they decide to invest in, in small businesses. Yes, it's the, the frustration sometimes at the 
the, the role money has come to assume now in terms of, as you say, what can be done and what can't be done. Uh, you can have a, a ton of bricks, um, bags of cement, uh, glass, wood and all the other materials you need, um, uh, a busload of uh, builders parked next to it. But if there isn't uh, numbers on a screen somewhere, you'll be told you cannot build a school. And yet everything you need to build a school is sat right in front of you. Yeah. And that's the frustration, I think, in terms of a lot of what things that really need to be addressed, you know, in, in the country and in, globally as well. So many things um, that need to be addressed urgently are not being because of lack of finance. And of course, as you say, uh, government now trying to enact so-called austerity to claw back money. It's, it's on its head, the situation. It's, uh, it, 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 it cut, this is what stems from this fundamental lack of understanding is, yeah. mi- is misguided policies like that. Yeah, completely. I mean, look at the, the example we've had for the last few years. We've had unemployment at about the three million mark uh, since the crisis. Uh, so we've got all these people sitting at home desperately looking for you know something to do. And at the same time, you've had the government saying, well, we can't afford to rebuild the schools, even though many of the school buildings in the UK are in disrepair uh, because we haven't got the money. Um, so you've got these people who want to do something. You've got these things that, you know, all this stuff that needs to be done. And yet, because we can't create some numbers in a computer system, it can't be done. Um, and yet the banks still have this ability to to create money um, for what they decide is worth creating the money for. Now, you've you just said a moment ago you've mingled to some extent with with you know political class and and economists and and financiers and what have you what what's your gut personal feeling on this because i ask myself this often is in terms of politicians and economists and other experts so called how many of them genuinely really have no clue as to the the truth behind all of this you know the sort of the the little man behind the curtain in the wizard of oz how many of them really lie awake maybe at night, in silence and darkness, in the, with their own private thoughts, and they genuinely have no idea. They really do think it's as they're being told. Well, I actually think it is a majority, um, because if you're, not, if you're not taught about how money is created, um, then you work on the assumption that there is X amount of money. It's there in the economy. Um, if you don't have it, then it must be somewhere else. And you know, the government thinks that the only way they can get the money from is is from the people is from raising taxes or from borrowing um and i actually think most people work on this assumption you can see it in the things they say they a lot of people find it very difficult to understand the the idea that you know money has been created out of nothing all the time and the impact that that has on the economy um so i think it is it is the majority of politicians and, and many uh policy in government and in the civil service as well are just not clear on this at all and it's partly because you know the, the way you're brought up you um you get money by working or you know from your parents when you were a kid um, and once you spent that money it's gone and you never think that somebody's actually creating money electronically um through the banking system and in terms of uh bankers then we're talking about with big you know international banks that's the relatively small number that really are the the, the hub of uh, global economic activity at what level of the hierarchy there do you go up to to you find you know a clear understanding of what's going on but actually yes we're running the system this way because we benefit from it well i mean i think people in these positions high up in the banks they genuinely believe that what they're doing is is useful for the economy um which is surprising i mean i think you know there is a role for banks 
um, and there is a need for some of the things that they do. But much of banking recently has become very, uh, it's moved from thinking about value creation and wealth creation to wealth extraction. So when you, I mean, you hear quite often from from the lobbyists for the banking sector this this idea that banks are essential because they get money to uh, businesses and they they invest and that creates jobs and that helps the economy grow. Well, the reality is that just um, you know it's about a tenth of all the money that banks lend goes to businesses, and the majority of it is things like property and financial market speculation. So, so a lot of them I think are still buying into this sort of fairy tale that. A bank is there to take money from savers and lend it to borrowers. Um, the reality is that actually banks have become much more uh, extractive and they're not adding nearly as much value as people think they do. Yes, the, um, the traditional vision uh, of a bank manager, uh, say like uh, Captain Mannering from Dad's Army, some of our UK yeah, yeah. Um, listeners may be old enough to remember that show, was of a, um, you know, a conservative guy, uh, conservative in dress and... and uh, uh, mannerisms and uh, you could go and have an appointment with him see him in the back office if you were starting a business or you wanted to buy a house and he'd be very cordial to you if you had money deposited with him and he'd be quite stern with you if you you had nothing but loans but it was this one-to-one relationship maybe not always with a manager but the bank was there very much as a seen as a service to the community and I think that at some point perhaps you can speak about this the we call that retail banking and then sort of investment banking, which is that world of stuff that you would hear about in, on Wall Street. At some point, they seem to have crossed over and become merged in a rather unhealthy way. Uh, there was certainly, and perhaps you could also mention, there was legislation at one time uh, in the States, the Glass-Steagall Act, which basically meant that if you, your money, you, know, you and I, average guys, put our money in the bank, that didn't end up being gambled with in speculative investments. It was, it was kind of ring-fenced. Uh, but then that all went away and it led to tremendous problems. Well, yeah, it, it yeah, to a large extent it has done. Um, but there's a lot of people now saying that you should have a, a separation of investment and retail banking again so that you keep the sort of investing in small businesses and property lending um, separate from the uh, financial market speculation. But the um, I think the thing that people miss is that it's not that people's savings are being taken from them and then put into... Uh, you know, financial speculation. The banks are actually creating money to finance this speculation. So it's not so much about separating them, it's about controlling what they can do. And one of the things that we would like to do is that some of the reforms that you can make to the system would actually allow the savers and the customers of banks to decide what it is that the bank does with their money. Um, And I think that would give people a lot more control over what is done. Yeah, well, there's, as you say, I mean, obviously money on deposit from customers is only a small proportion of really what's in the system. The banks can create money from nothing. Then that's, you know, you're going to struggle to control that to a certain extent. But what we're beginning to see increasingly, I mean, obviously we've had credit unions around for for many years, but we're beginning to see the rise of, of, of ethical banking, if we can call it that. And certainly I see a lot more um, of this going on on the web, people starting new initiatives and uh, investment opportunities opening up so you can invest it might be locally for example you want to restrict it to that or it might be not for example in armaments or not in nuclear power and um, I think that could be one of the ways forward yeah yeah and I think there's some really interesting models coming out like that now like um, so I mean for example peer-to-peer lending which allows you to through companies like SOPA for example allows you to lend uh, effectively to other people so you put in 
you know, £100, and that will be split up between 100 different borrowers, um, so that if any one of them can't repay, you don't lose the whole amount. And now that same sort of model has been extended to things like investing in, in wind turbines and solar energy. Um, so, I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense to have a wind turbine on your house because it's not very efficient. But if you can invest directly in a you know, full-scale wind turbine, then you can get the return in terms of the, the power that's actually generated by that wind turbine. So there's a company called uh, Abundance Generation, which is doing this now and allowing people to, direct, to directly invest in, in actually creating these things. Um, which I think is fantastic. It's a way of bypassing the big banks, and it means that we can get past this situation where the only things they, they're really interested in is investing in property bubbles and uh, financial market speculation. And you're, you're at positivemoney.org. You're affiliated with um, something called rebuildingsociety.com. Yeah, well, this is another peer-to-peer lender which will be investing in businesses. Um, uh-huh. So it's another way of allowing people to, to uh, invest directly in business. Now, for people who haven't studied economics, and even for quite a few of those who who have, it's important to sort of understand that economics isn't kind of like one monolithic system, because it's very easy to look at how things are now and think, well, what else could we do? And this is how it's always been. Um, Perhaps you could say something about the kind of, in intellectual terms, the system of economics that dominates in the industrialized economies. And that compared to other things, for example, we're hearing more, especially in the financial press now about, you know, the Austrian school. And this will be new to most people, but it's a not completely different, but in some ways, quite radically different way of organizing uh, an economic and monetary system. Yeah, I mean, there's there's different schools of economics. And the the one that is uh, dominant at the moment is, uh, well, essentially the one that failed to predict the crisis um, because they they don't look at money. They ignore the role of banks in the economy. Um, in fact, interestingly, the Bank of England, until about a year ago, their main economic models of the economy didn't include the banking system, uh, which is just, you know, is incredible. Um, so, so there, there's, you know, the mainstream really have um, uh, not really added much in the way of understanding the economy. And uh, actually, Professor Steve Keen is very good on this in explaining sort of why mainstream economics is, um, you know, so useless actually in explaining what goes on because many of the assumptions that they're they're working on have been working on for the last few hundred years just just don't apply in reality um yeah and then you have you have different schools like the um the the post keynesians who have a much better understanding of money and the austrians uh the austrian school which is um very clear on how the banking system works and the effects of money creation um so it's it's not that all economists think the same. There's a lot of different arguments and different ideas within those different schools. Now, we spoke earlier about the uh, sort of divergence between the monetary system and actual resources available um, for consumption or to do work. Uh, And one of the side effects of the way the monetary system is organized now is that it, it has become completely divorced from resources in terms of what's available in the natural world. And yes, there's a profit motive at work here as well but the monetary system is facilitating um, a lot of the problems that we're seeing now with you know um, environmental destruction and shortages of all sorts of things and also of course it distorts the price of you know energy and and oil and uh, and food of course ultimately at the end of the day yeah of course i mean uh commodity speculation is an example of that 
the money that has been put into speculating on food prices has pushed up the price of food for people in developing countries. So, um, you know, people who are actually living in poverty are finding that it's becoming more and more expensive just to, to feed themselves. Um, and again, the money, you know, this is not money that's been taken from somebody's grandmother's savings and, you know, invested in this market. It's actually money that has been created by the banking system. So this, you know, this creation of money can can have a load of very harmful effects on on the environment, on the economy, on, you know, on ordinary people. And when we look at the, the banking institutions, um, some of the names change occasionally, but um, a lot of them have got a long history. Uh, a lot of them are interconnected as well. Um, but the impression you get is that because they've always been there, that somehow new banks don't really uh, come into being. And certainly there are incredible buyers to that. But suppose I say to you, Ben, hey, tomorrow, let's get some capital together and open the the bank of Ben and Greg. Uh, what's stopping us from doing that? Well, it, it's almost impossible, uh, primarily because of the uh, financial services authority's attitude to new banks. Um, so, I mean, just to give you one example of how bizarre this is, if you're an established bank like Lloyd's, for every loan you make, you have to have a certain amount of capital, which is um, essentially it's it's a buffer. That means if the loans go bad, you won't actually go bankrupt and go to the taxpayer asking for a bailout. The, the Financial Services Authority says that if you're a new bank, you're riskier. Therefore, you need to keep one and a half times as much capital as one of the big banks, which makes it much more expensive for these new banks to actually lend and to, to get off the ground. And it, it's just crazy, you know, the, that the small banks uh, would be seen as being riskier than the, the large banks that have proven that, you know, they, their risk management is so bad that they've all gone bust, um, at least once in the last, you know, crisis. So the, the regulators, unfortunately, try and put, well, they do put a lot of barriers in the way of, of getting new banks set up. And that means that the, the big ones that we have um, get to keep their sort of protected position where they, um, they can rely on the government rescuing them because they're so big that for them to fail will cause a, you know, a massive contraction in the, the money supply because it's the banks that create the money. So what a lot of people have said in the wake of the, <clears throat> the financial crisis and the ensuing bailouts that really it would have been less pain overall if the, if the banks had been allowed to fail. Um, what's your take on that and, and what, what might we have seen differently if the bailouts hadn't been forthcoming? I think possibly what the people saying that don't appreciate is that the liability side of a bank's balance sheet is the money that we are using. Um, so, for example, RBS. If RBS was allowed to fail, about £700 billion of what people think is their money in their accounts would have just disappeared. And you would have had about 10 million people left with no access to money. Now, what that could lead to is a, a panic and a run on all the other banks. And actually, from that from that process, you can end up very quickly going back to a you know cash only economy. So it would be absolute chaos. Now, the government in that situation couldn't have allowed RBS to fail. For there's another reason as well, which is that the government guarantees to give back your money if the bank fails. Um, so when RBS failed, the government had the choice of either finding 700 billion to give back to all these customers, which would have been impossible for the government to actually borrow that much money in such a short period of time. Or it could just uh, give RBS about 45 billion in exchange for shares. And that would be the bailout. And that would mean that RBS would then 
in an accounting sense, be solvent again and could continue in business. What they could have done, really, if they if they really understood money, they could have allowed RBS to fail. Um, they could have acknowledged that the money in people's accounts was just money that was created out of nothing. And then they could have just used a computer to recreate that money, liquidated RBS, but made sure that nobody actually lost the money in their accounts. I mean, it's that sort of sounds illegitimate in a way, but that's exactly how that money was created in the first place. It would just be sort of, you know, you delete it off the screen and then just type it back in again, basically. Yeah, well, that, that that's it. I mean, money is created every time somebody takes out a loan um, and it's destroyed every time somebody repays a loan. So that's, you know, it, it's not, you, you don't want to have people creating the kinds of sums of money that the banks have created because it's caused all this inflation and this instability. But that is how money is created now. And, and we need to understand that because it really affects the economy. When you were saying that it wouldn't have been the government couldn't have allowed, for example, RBS to go bust because it couldn't have it couldn't have borrowed that money to put back in people's accounts. That's a really important point that I think many people don't quite grasp is that the government hasn't got any money. <laughs> and it's not independently wealthy. Um, it, it doesn't have loads of investments that it's done really well on. Uh, on the contrary, um, it's absolutely up to its ears and beyond in debt, you know, borrowed money that was borrowed at interest. And I in a recent interview with uh, Douglas Carswell MP, you had I'll point people to that interview where we discussed just this problem. But the government can't, you know, come to the rescue with its, its own stash of money because it's not there. Yeah, well, the, the government's only really got uh, three ways of getting money. Um, the first one is through taxes second through borrowing or the third is to create it and um, essentially the government doesn't with the exception of quantitative easing which is a slightly well it is a special case um, up until the beginning of the crisis the government didn't really create money the only money it created was the uh, the cash which only made up three percent of all the money that has ever been created so yeah the government is dependent on on borrowing and taxes now the problem is that uh, you, you do need somebody to uh, create money in line with uh, how the economy is growing. Uh, when you have banks creating money, they're going to create as much as possible and put it into you know the wrong things that cause this uh, instability and house price inflation. Um, what we what we're suggesting actually is that you have part of the Bank of England responsible for creating this money, but they do it in line with the economy. So if inflation starts going up, then they need to stop creating money. But what you can do with that then is that that can go to the, the government. And that's another source of revenue. That means that we don't have to pay as much tax. Um, and so long as they're not abusing that money creation process, um, it will actually save us money. Well, that's the key, though, isn't it? As long as they're not abusing it. I mean, people have said before, um, you know, many you know, sort of campaigners are saying, OK, just instead of having the government borrow money from banks at interest, let the government create official, you know, money of the country and they create it themselves. They don't have to pay back any interest on it. But other people have then countered with saying, well, if they do that, if they can then fund themselves, um, even when they've been borrowing uh, huge amounts and getting into real problems with debt, that hasn't stopped them. So if they were able to produce it interest-free, and you know what the situation would be like, God only knows. And what's your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, it's um, it's potentially dangerous, and this is why um, one of the things that we say very often is that you can't you can't trust profit-seeking banks to create money responsibly because they're always going to create too much. But at the same, you know, by the same means, you can't trust uh, vote-seeking uh, politicians to have this power to create money as well because they've got the same 
incentives to abuse that power. Um, so what you have to do is, I mean, essentially the the fundamental thing is that if somebody who is who has the power to create money will also benefit from creating that money, then they're going to have a conflict of interest and they're going to create too much. So it doesn't matter whether it's politicians or banks, um, that that power to create money will be abused. And what we're advocating is that that power to create money is taken to an independent, uh, accountable public body. So this might be a, a committee at the Bank of England or it might have to be something new. Uh, but the point is that this should be completely transparent so that we know who's creating money, we know how much has been created, and then we know where that money goes afterwards. Um, at the moment, there's no transparency about this and there's complete abuse of the system because uh, you know, the more money that the banks create, the more they profit. Yeah, but again, we, we wouldn't want to see that power shift straight to politicians because we think there'd be the same potential for abuse there. It's interesting how in all of this, and there's so many other areas of uh, political life that we talk about, you know, the need for regulation and committees and oversight and all the rest of it. Whereas, and this is going to sound hopelessly idealistic, but what is required here is for human beings, the individuals to do the right thing. You know, is it really so difficult? Yeah, but it's it's also a, you know, it's a systemic thing. It's because um, this is what I think. I mean, speaking to a lot of people in the city and I have friends who work in in the big banks and things and some of our supporters actually work in the big banks and you know most of these people aren't bad people but they're working as a, a cog in a much bigger machine and it's quite difficult for any one person to to change the direction of that machine which is why it, it's not it's not just a case of saying well we need bankers to be honest or we need um, people to be more responsible you actually have to change the the structure of that system you know, it could be that if you change the structure of the system, then people's behavior changes as a result rather than waiting for people to change their behavior. So is that more likely to happen in your view from the top or the bottom or is it a, is it a bit of both? I think it's a bit of both because you have, um, I mean, as we talked about a few minutes ago, you have this uh, uh, innovation in finance, things like peer-to-peer -peer lending and ways to allow people to directly invest in renewable energy, for example. Um, you also have different monetary systems that have been developed, uh, things like Bitcoin, that allow people to actually bypass this, you know, this bank-created money. Um, but I think you also have to, uh, at some point, you have to get the government to change the legislation to actually change the system. They're trying to sort of put a lid on this problem that they've got with the global financial system at the minute. But it's proving impossible, really, because you know we're told that the financial crisis, which blew up in <clears throat> 07, 08, is kind of over, and now we're just navigating our way back to. Uh, growth and blue skies. But as this sort of implosion continues like a slow train wreck, we do, it's a real prime chance of reform potentially at the minute, you know, because so many people like yourselves are campaigning and talking about this and there's so much constantly in the media. I mean, there isn't a news bulletin that goes by virtually, you know, in the, in the West and in industrialized countries without making some reference to some aspect of this ongoing crisis. So it's just a question of whether we can actually use this, or maybe momentum is the wrong word, but we can use this situation to actually, you know, as a transformative moment. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think now has to be the time because it's, um, you know, the last few years have shown that the system just doesn't work. So now has to be the time when you, you push for something new. And it's, it's obvious from what's happening in Europe and internationally that the, you know, the people in charge don't really know what they're doing. Uh, you know, everything that they've tried has not worked. Um, so it's a time for, you know, actually putting forward new ideas and, and getting something that would actually work into place. 
things have been brought to a head now and many issues that people weren't confronted with, um, you know, the fundamental disconnect between the monetary system and, and the actual real world. Um, that's now out in the open. But there seems to be this determination, and perhaps you can say how long do you think this will be able to go on, but there's a determination within the establishment that no matter what the, what happens, no matter what the effect is on countries and on real people and real institutions, that this system must be quote unquote rescued or saved, you know, whatever it is, and that the too big to fail um, mantra, which um, was applied to the banks, also seems to apply to things like the euro uh, and the US dollar and what have you. Yeah, it's, um, I, th I think the reason for that is because they only see uh, two alternatives. One is either to keep the current system, or two is that it collapses completely and you have uh, absolute, you know, social and economic chaos. And what we're trying to put forward is the uh, a third alternative, which is that you actually reform the system um, in a way that makes it work. Uh, and we've actually we've just today actually just finished a 330-page book, which explains how to do that, uh, called Modernizing Money. And this. Um, this would actually, you know, there are ways that you can fix this system. It's not that difficult and it can be done quite quickly. And it's actually easier to fix a system than it is to try and rescue what we have today. So if you had the ear uh, of the the movers and shakers that people needed uh, to make these reforms happen, what uh, just bullet point, and I've even referred to some of these already, but just kind of to, to bring it together, just bullet point a few key things that you would be saying if you were in a a nine o'clock meeting tomorrow morning with these important people say, okay, look, this can't go on. We need to, we need to turn this around. We need to fix this. What are we going to do? Yeah. Well, there's, um, there's four main things. The first thing is to stop banks from creating money, uh, because they they always create too much for the, the wrong purposes. Secondly, you need to take that power to, uh, an independent, but accountable public body that will create money in the public interest. Um, if, Inflation starts going up, they have to stop creating money. And then you put that money into the economy instead of lending it and getting people into more and more debt, you actually spend it into the economy. So this comes in as, as new debt free money. And that allows people, um, once it gets into the economy, uh, it gets into the, you know, the real economy, the high street, the shops and factories and businesses, uh, stimulates the economy, gets, uh, gets things going again. And what that will do is it will allow people to actually start paying off the existing debt. Um, now, in the current system, you can't really reduce uh, personal debt because if people start paying down their debts, then the money supply shrinks and you have a recession. Um, in the current, if you if you reform that system and you have debt-free money coming into the economy, then that money can be used to pay off the existing debt, and it it's the only way that you can actually start reducing the amount of debt in the economy and you know, reversing the situation that we're in today. Um, so yeah, so you need to stop the banks creating money, return that power to create money to an independent accountable body, and make sure that that money is spent into the economy and the, the public interest in such a way that it doesn't cause inflation. Now, when I saw the writing on the wall, wall of this about 10 years ago, um, I was looking around for a strategy because I thought I have to sort of take personal responsibility for this. Um, uh, you know, because waiting for systemic institutional reform, I didn't see it was going to happen. Of course, I didn't foresee the financial crisis in its current form, but I thought something along these lines was a distinct possibility. So what I did with my money was um, I put it into gold and silver. 
Now, it's been an interesting 10 years. Um, overall, I've done very well. And in researching what I could do with my money and eventually, you know, the process that led me to decide to do what I did, um, I read a lot from um, hard money or sound money advocates about their um, reforms, you know, they, the system that they would like to see. Uh, do you think that uh, a sort of a, a limited hard money system is too simplistic for the sort of complexities of the uh, economies that we have today? And do, does it have any role? Because we see now some uh, the international banks uh, talking about bringing gold back as basically a, a, a risk-free designation for, for them to have their money in. Yeah, and I think I think the thing is um, you need a way of limiting the creation of money so that it stays in line with uh, how the economy is actually growing. Um, so I, I don't really see the point of arbitrarily limiting the money supply to the, the quantity of gold, for example. Um, you can, I mean, what we would advocate is that you have an electronic money supply and you only increase that when inflation is um, is low and steady. So if you if you increase the money supply too quickly, you'll see inflation going up and then that's your sign to stop creating money. Uh, the thing with the thing with gold is whenever um, the gold monetary system hasn't really worked well for governments is they've just come off the gold standard um, and they've just said we'll suspend it. So I think, you know, although some people are talking about going back to that now, I don't think that will be something that uh, will be stuck to for very long if it was ever implemented. One of the things it's uh, in some ways it's a side issue, in other ways it's not, is that a lot of government policy particularly international policy, whether it's in terms of aid or whether it's in terms of warfare, I'm particularly thinking of the US in this regard, wouldn't be possible were it not for out-of-control uh, government borrowing. So in terms of international politics, a geopolitical situation, what effects do you think we might see there if your reforms were enacted? Well, we're not, we're not advocating that you uh, prohibit governments from borrowing. Um, one of the things that this system would be what well, would make possible is that it would become possible to start paying down the government debt because you wouldn't have these uh, these crises that you know force the government into a situation where they have to keep borrowing but you might still i mean again it's if you have a responsible government then um, they might do things responsibly if not then uh, they might still borrow and spend and mismanage their finances basically it doesn't affect it you might still have bad government and you might have good government after all the work you've been doing, and this is partly aided, as I say, by this ongoing crisis and people's attention have been focused in this area. But um, finally, the mainstream media are starting to pick up on this and your message in particular. I know you've been on Radio 4 and some of the main UK newspapers, such as The Guardian and The Telegraph and The Independent, have featured um, your position. And also, uh, significantly, um, your argument that the financial crisis was caused by the ability of banks to create money. This was picked up uh, by the UK's chief regulator. So this is starting to have an effect. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it's definitely over the last six months or so, more and more people are talking about this. And um, I think it's partly, you know, there's a lot of interest in this partly because it's obvious that, uh, again, the people in charge don't really know what's going on or why they're unable to fix things. Um, what we're saying is is something that is it's quite new. I mean, we're definitely not the only people saying this. Um, but we have been saying for the last two years that the root of the financial crisis was this ability of the banking sector to create money. Um, that hasn't really been put forward in any of the mainstream newspapers up until a few months ago. 
And then uh, the end of October, beginning of November, the chairman of the Financial Services Authority in a, in a speech came out and said that the, um, the financial crisis was caused because we failed to constrain the ability of banks to create uh, private money and credit. Um, so basically vindicating what we've been saying for the last two years. And I think it's, you know, particularly this coming year as well, I think we're going to be able to get this message out to many more people and really help people understand why, you know, the things that are happening are happening and how we can actually change it. Now, you mentioned your um, your book uh, launch, which is happening in a few weeks. Uh, yeah, Modernizing Money, uh, Why Our Monetary System is Broken and How It Can Be Fixed. But you've also produced a documentary film, uh, which is entitled 97% Owned. Now, there's a lot of documentaries about the true nature of the monetary system have come out of um, the US, for example, um, Bill Still and Secret of Oz and uh, Money Masters, Ellen Brown, her book Web of Debt. You know, people like uh, G. Edward Griffin have been working on this problem for decades. Um, but it's really good to see something uh, UK focused um, on this subject. Yeah, um, I, I should say as well, actually, we didn't produce. That. It was a couple of independent uh, producers, uh, Q Politely, uh, very talented people. But yeah, that, that documentary has been, um, I think it's been watched well over a quarter of a million times now. Um, you can watch it for free on YouTube, uh, 97% owned. But also that that is the first uh, documentary that was been, that was specific to the UK system. And it's the first one that has been produced after the research that we did for a book called Where Does Money Come From? Uh, where we actually spent, uh, one of my colleagues and some guys from the New Economics Foundation spent... Uh, about four months, two people full-time, going through paper after paper from the Bank of England to try and piece together how the entire monetary system actually works. Because that, you know, the, the textbooks that they're teaching from in universities were out of date about 30 years ago, but they're still using that. So we, we went to the effort of producing an updated um, explanation of how the monetary system works. And all that sort of you know, research and data and evidence has gone into the documentary. So it's it's one of the most accurate documentaries you'll find about the monetary system. Excellent. And main event coming up very soon. Uh, you've got a, another conference coming up. Uh, perhaps you could just tell folks about that. Yeah, so this is on January 26, uh, Saturday, in central London. And it's a full-day conference where we, we're getting about 300 people together uh, to really start thinking about you know, how to uh, turn this into a nationwide campaign, how to get the rest of the population to to understand money and why it needs to change. Um, so we'll be we'll be launching the book there, actually. Um, but also there'll be lots of sessions about sort of different forms of activism, and what you can do uh, to actually do this. Uh, we'll be testing out some of the campaign ideas and see what people think of that. Um, and it'll be, you know, it'll be an opportunity to meet a lot of people who are very interested in the subject. Now, as well as educating themselves and once they've done that maybe uh, educating others what can people individually do to kind of help in this situation uh, in terms of their personal banking habits um, is there anything that people who are maybe feeling a little bit helpless in the face of all this can do that might contribute to positive change yes yes definitely well i think one of the first things to do is um it is you know it is the biggest banks that are causing most of the the economic damage in the economy so um, you can move your account from one of the big banks to um, uh, I'm not qualified to give financial advice but um, the the more ethical banks such as co-op and uh, uh, Triodos for example so Triodos is a really interesting 
bank. Um, they're, they're a Dutch bank, but they're completely licensed and regulated in the UK as well. Uh, what they do is they publish on their website the detail of every single company that they've lent to. So you can go on there, if you put your savings into Triodos, you can actually see on their website who they invest in, which you know, which organic farm or which um, local business is there investing in. And they won't invest in things that are socially or economically harmful. Cooperative, again, have far more branches around the country if you need something that's very convenient. And then there's these uh, other schemes like peer-to-peer lending, things like SOPA, things like uh, the Rebuilding Society, uh, Funding Circle, um, Abundance Generation, all worth looking at. You know, you can actually use your money to do something good instead of relying on the banks to, uh, to decide what they want to do. Well, Ben, in conclusion, perhaps you could just uh, tell the listeners about uh, the Positive Money uh, website and the resources that are there and anything else that you want to share that's coming up for 2013. Definitely. Um, well, I mean, this is uh, the first time you hear about this uh, money creation thing. It can sometimes be a little bit confusing. On the Positive Money website, which is positivemoney.org, there is a load of videos and presentations and uh, some animations as well, which make this really simple and easy to understand um, so I would recommend uh, going there checking out some of the videos on there and then also sharing that with friends uh, because we need as many people as possible to know about this wonderful well Ben Dyson thank you very much for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com thank you well that's it for another week as ever thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed the show please check out the website that's legalize-freedom.com where you'll find an archive of programs and many equally fascinating topics. I would also urge you to visit Positive Money's website at positivemoney.org, which offers many useful resources including books and publications, videos, and also the documentary film 97% Owned. If you believe that there's nothing little me or little you can do to change the monetary system that's destroying our world and the lives of billions, you're wrong. There's a great deal that we can all do starting right now. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. <laughs>